Sorry, what are we talking about? <laughs> Were you not listening or was I just not speaking clearly? <laughs> <laughs> I think I zoned out halfway through the sentence. Welcome back to Merlison Guys, a bi-weekly podcast about BBC's Merlin, where we talk about the show, the ships, the fandom, and the characters. My name is Momotastic. And I'm Miss Snowfox. And actually, not all that bi-weekly this month. <laughs> not this month, but don't get used to it, guys. <laughs> we've been we've been very weekly in January by accident. I was but... wondering why I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, what we actually want to do now is sort of just, you know, recap season one in its entirety. Just, you know, talk about how we thought the season in its entirety went, what we thought about the tone of it, the character developments, etc. Just to, you know, just to tie it all up nicely with a bow on top. Yes. And before we get into any of that, we will quickly have some news. There's a fem slash February figathon at clockwork underscore heart one on Dream Myth. You can leave or fill prompts all month long. Go forth and write more ladies loving ladies fig. Following a similar but different theme is the awesome ladies part fig anthology. This is an annual event where you're encouraged to produce short ladies centric part fig, gen or shippy, for any fandom you like. Submission deadline is February the 14th. So as of airing date of this episode, you have roughly five more days to get this done. Check out Amplificathon on DreamMuth for more information. Camelot Dreamix is going into the next round. The concept of the challenge is to take an existing work and remix it. A remix can be a retelling from a different character point of view or an expansion in form of a sequel or prequel to the existing story. It can also be art. For more information and sign-up guidelines, check them out on LifeJournal. Sign-ups close on the 20th of February. On Friday the 15th of February, the second artist check-in for Reverse Big Bang is due. Please keep an eye open for an email or post on LifeJournal from the mods. Last but not least, the blog MerlinCast Daily on Tumblr is looking for a new admin or group of mods. The current admin no longer has the time to cultivate the blog and they're looking for someone to take it over. If you're interested, please get in touch with them. Amazing! That was it for news. And also because we have the time for it, we will do a talkback. Yay! Yay! <laughs> and today's comment comes again from Lao Pendragon, who left us a long comment on our website on our episode about Gwen and her character analysis. Lau had this to say on the Gwen episode. This was a very interesting episode. It took me a few days to think about all the things you said and the things I never realized or even the things I see the same way and feel relieved not to be the only one feeling like this. So I'm not a fan of Gwen's character. Before Gwen and I could even start to connect, her character became more and more unlikable for me. I think if you're connected with a character, you can look beyond mistakes or weird character traits. But if you didn't have the chance, there's not much hope. But my reasons are different, which made me wonder if I'm wrong about this or if others have the same problem with Gwen as a character. So I thought I'd share my thoughts with you. 
I usually need more time to connect to female characters than to male characters. Morgana, for example, became more and more interesting for me the more seasons I watched. I think I can't handle the classic weak female character, the damsel in distress. I totally block when a female character fits into this role. I think this is why my start with Morgana was nah and became better when I learned that she is not the sweet little princess character I thought she would be. But Gwen, well, Gwen is a classic damsel in distress. I don't even bother to believe the few scenes in which they want to convince me otherwise anymore, like in the moment of truth or sword in the stone. Sure, Arthur has to get saved all the time too, but never in a damsel in distress sort of way. For Gwen, just think to To Kill the King, Lancelot and Guinevere, The Castle of Fyrian, Queen of Hearts, The Darkest Hour 2, The Hunter's Heart, The Dark Tower, and actually, again, With All My Heart. Wow. Cool. Um, I will quickly just say before Mo, because yeah. Mo has a lot of things to say, but I, I, I don't think you should feel bad, and I think that yeah. I can completely relate. And I didn't really go into this too much in the character analysis because, again, I think it's you often get branded as sexist if you find a female character annoying, which I think is quite normal these days for any kind of media. Um, but I found Gwen quite irritating. Uh, when I first watched the show specifically in season two I think I kind of touched on that a bit but yeah I I'm still it's still difficult for me to kind of see her with the same love as I do the other characters um and like Morgana for instance I really dislike in the later seasons but in the first few seasons I really enjoyed her whereas Gwen it's been a bit of a rocky journey for me but um I think that part of that is like we've said that she became kind of this naggy person and almost like this textbook of you know that she needed to be constantly teaching stuff and also she just didn't get that much screen time in general but I don't think that you should feel bad about that and actually the friend that I'm introducing to Merlin currently when she first and like I didn't like I said to her that I didn't like Arwen but I never said anything to her about Gwen as a character in fact I was like hyping Lancelot and Gwen to her a lot so obviously that's part of it and she was getting really annoyed with Gwen like actively annoyed and she's trained to look at things critically because she's um a film lover like me and she was just like oh my god can she just get off the screen especially in episodes like Once and Future Queen where that's all she's doing is being a nag basically and I think that it's such a shame because the moments where she does shine they are very endearing and like I'm sure Momo is about to tell you she's very smart she's a really capable character more than most of the others and unfortunately they did reduce her to nag a lot of the time which is why I found it irritating but that's just me yeah also with the uh, this is not part of my actual notes but um, what you said, it's very dangerous to dislike a female character because you'll be branded a sexist rather quickly, even though you have maybe legit reasons to dislike this female character. It's also, especially with Gwen, you're also very quickly branded a racist yep. if you dislike Gwen, just because Gwen is black. And so it's it's doubly dangerous to voice your opinion of disliking Gwen because not only are you a misogynist, you're also a racist, even though your dislike of her has nothing to do with, you know, color of her skin and more to do with how the writers fucked her up, basically. Yeah, exactly. Um, what I wanted to say, actually, is when I was uh, preparing stuff for the first Coinalod, I was looking into the entire damsel in distress trope on BBC's Merlin, and I came across this 
reverse trope of dude in distress. And the thing is that with regards to Merlin, it sort of tries to portray itself as a show with more of the dude in distress trope rather than the damsel in distress trope, just because it's usually Arthur in distress and he's a dude. <laughs> but it doesn't actually work for for this show. And um, like, to be fair, I don't know if this was the actual intention of the writers, but at first glance, it might look like Merlin is a dude in distress sort of show. And it's true that overall more dudes are in distress on the show than there are damsels in distress. However, the dudes aren't saved by the ladies. They're usually saved by other dudes. And sometimes the ladies help. But usually they're saved by the dudes. So when a female character is in distress, she's also saved mostly by dudes rather than by other ladies. I can sort of tell you in how many episodes female characters save or attempt to save or help save a male character. And it's six. It's 104, 108, 313, 409, 413, and 510. I, I was about to say I created this tally from a list of episodes, not by rewatching the whole show yeah, yeah. in a day, uh, with a focus on this exact trope. Yeah. So I might have forgotten one or one or miscounted or something. So everyone please feel free to let me know in in comments if what what episodes i've forgotten but just if you look at these instances where either arthur or merlin were captured tied up or generally just down on their luck they still had physical strength they had weapons merlin had magic most of the time and they had all of these these uh, tools at their disposal to get out of the situation themselves and when gwen and morgana get captured in season two for example in uh, lancel and guinevere they have nothing except the chance to run, and that goes wrong for Gwen. Yeah. And like, and after she gets recaptured, she relies entirely on Lancelot to get her out of captivity. So this is the the whole damsel in distress versus dude in distress trope, where like you think that Merlin is actually subverting the damsel in distress trope just by making Arthur the one who is usually in distress. But the actual subversion of the trope would be if Arthur were saved by Morgana or Gwen all the time, or most of the time. Instead, Arthur is just saved by other dudes. And same as Merlin, when he's in distress, usually he gets saved by other dudes, or by himself, or by magic creatures. Not usually by female characters. Yeah. And I think this is what, like, this is one of the things that definitely makes me dislike some of the female characters on Merlin because we are supposed to believe that they are capable female characters like, you know, uh, quote-unquote strong female characters, but they're not. They're, they're actually not portrayed that way. For example, yeah. Morgana um, is the embodiment of the uh, evil seductress. She's fighty, she's sexy, she's flirty, uh, even though she shouldn't be because this is the Middle Ages. And like, and I'm much more tired of this sort of character, uh, female characters, uh, where they, you know, they they are strong because they're sexy. So even though I'm I'm annoyed that Gwen is is a damsel and you know is often portrayed as very feminine and girly with the uh, with the flowers and whatnot, I actually find that endearing about her because I find her a much stronger female character. Because at least in the beginning of the show, she isn't 
unnecessarily sexualized and she's actually smart. Like we've often commented on Detective Gwen and how she's smart when doing things. Yeah, I'll stop here because this has turned into a rant. No, it's okay. (laughs) I I can see your point, Lau. I still personally like Gwen because she has other qualities that, while traditionally associated with women, like caring and having crushes on boys and, you know, sewing and, you know, just being uh, shy and cute and, and all of that, there's more to her. At least in the beginning, there's more to her. Or the tropes work for for this character, like the kindness and the intelligence and the loyalty and the motherly vibes mostly work, except when the motherly vibes sort of turn into the teacher vibes that she then has towards Arthur when they're trying to to push forward the Arwenship by making Gwen Arthur's teacher. Mm. Um, But I find that, like... And I really, like, I'm not trying to be horrible by making this into, like, a shippy thing, but I find her most irritating when she's around Arthur because I just find that her, um, the way they write this dialogue and the way that they deal with their dynamic, like, even like we said in the L'Amour Le- Arthur review, like, yeah, it's actually quite cool, the little interaction they have where she gets flustered and he's like, come on, like... That's really cool. Like that feels like like yeah, that. Cute. That actually feels more genuine to their respective characters than any other interaction they have ever had on this show. And the reason why I say that is because I find Gwen a bit wishy-washy with the way that she kind of feels about things. And I just find characters like that very frustrating. I don't like indecisiveness, I guess is what I'm saying. And I know that feel like real life people are like that. But when you're writing a character, you can't draw from real life like in the same way. Like you can't copy the way real life people behave and translate it into stories because then you get very messy arcs because people aren't characters. They're more complicated. And like... When you and also we me... watch also we watch yeah. shows and read books to get away from yeah, exactly. real life. Like if I want to see real life as it is, I'll watch a documentary. I don't go watching a fantasy show set in a hypothetical messed up medieval setting exactly <laughs> so if you want me to feel for this character, then please don't show me her falling for one person and then without any explanation of even oh I'm still thinking about that person falling for another then going back to falling for this other one and then still being in love with the other person months later when you were prepared to like run off with Lancelot or whatever and don't have scenes that for me just so this is the thing Gwen is shown to be smart Gwen is shown to kind of have a good head on her shoulders and especially in season three I just find her whole approach very frustrating because Arthur doesn't know better like he's always been led by his heart we know this he's a Slytherin through and through he's like me (laughs) I want to do this so I will so it makes sense for me in a way that he behaves the way he does that he's prepared to lay down whatever for his kingdom you know not that I think it's a good trait to have for him as a prince but I get it for his character whereas with Gwen I'm just like I wish he wouldn't say things like, you know, oh, well, you know, you can't always have what you want. I know that very well. And like, I'm really sad about this. And like, 
like constantly coming to Arthur's chamber just to feast on her misery. Gwen is smarter than this. Like Gwen is smarter than to like like beating a dead horse. So like I want to like her. I love like flustered kooky Gwen. Like that's kind of and that's who I love in Fick as well. But when she kind of tries to act uh, high and mighty when she doesn't like I'm not saying that she doesn't have the moral high ground, but like no one's perfect, you know? And I think sometimes the writers write her as if she kind of feels as though she she knows all of the things, you know, and should be dictating to everyone all the things that she knows. And I'm just like, yeah, no, you're yeah, you're just yeah, as flawed as I'm rest. saying where it's yeah, that's why I'm saying where I'm like it it gets annoying when the when the caring and the the caretaking turns into this naggy teacher mode. Exactly. And I know that some people may come at me and say, well, Roxanne, Morgana does the same thing to Arthur. Like she nags him and it. Yeah. But Arthur tells her to fuck off. <laughs> That's the difference. <laughs> like, and Arthur... also Morgana and Arthur are. Like grew Morgana... up together. Hmm? They grew, they grew, yeah, up, they grew yeah. up together. They are of uh, almost same standing. Morgana has a whole different platform to be to be uh, educating Arthur. Yeah, honestly. Exactly. To finish up Lau's comment, Lau also said, "It might just be my dislike for these kinds of female characters, and maybe others never saw in her the damsel in distress, and especially not in the episodes I named. But for me, she was, and this is why her character became more unlikable to me with every episode." Of course, there were more things I didn't like, but you named most of it already, and I'm very thankful for this. But God forbid, I'm not here just to rant about a character. I'll make it up by recommending a beautiful fanfiction for Gwen. It's the fic The Return of Magic Upon Dragon's Wings by Catherine from Philly on AO3. It's a mostly Gwen-centric post-canon fanfiction that made me cry like a little girl. Thank you for the recommendation, Lau. We will include this in our show notes. Yes. And Lau finishes out by saying, I wish the two of you a nice evening, and as always, keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Lau. We will do (laughs) our very best, as always. Yes. All right. And because this has been a very long comment, we will only talk about this one talkback today and go into the rest of the episode now. Indeed. Uh, So today we are here to talk about season one, in its entirety um not necessarily going into too many specifics but just we don't feel like we get to have kind of an overview when we talk about specific episodes because we are so much going into the nitty-gritty of every little detail and i think that before we move on to season two it's a good chance to reflect and just to see what patterns keep coming up what we've noticed and maybe what did or didn't end up carrying on to the next season so uh i think momo has some some statistics for you i have statistics okay so um for the overall season one we had on average two female characters of the main cast which of course as always gwen and morgana and on average one female character guest appearance uh per episode and then we had on average four male characters you know who they are and like as from the main cast and two male character guest appearances per episode so that's 
twice as many dudes as there are ladies in season one. And Merlin killed six people or creatures. And we had five characters of color. We had Gwen, we had Tom, we had Lancelot, we had Sir Pelinor, and we had Sir Ewan. And if you don't remember who Sir Ewan is, he's in Valiant. He's the dude who gets bitten by the snake and then dies. He's also the one who arguably is Leon's long-lost cousin because they're wearing the same crest on <laughs> their tunics. So There you go. But yeah, these are my stats. Cool. Um, so before we kind of talk about all of the individual relationships and characters and that kind of stuff I kind of just wanted to talk about some individual things that I've been noticing as we've been doing these episode reviews um, as to the things that I've been seeing so the first thing that I kind of wanted to touch on was tone because I actually having recently rewatched a bunch of Merlin with again the friend that I keep bringing up I tell all right guys from now on I'm just gonna say Annie because you need to just know who she is at this point because it's getting I'm, I'm pretty sure tight. you've mentioned Annie's name a couple of times before. I might have yeah. yeah so me and my friend Annie like she's watching Merlin for the first time it's so exciting to be experiencing it with her um she's on season three now um and we watched a bunch of episodes together including most of season two like I just went to her house one day and we just like stayed like there all day just watching season two and obviously I just came off the back of watching season one not only for Merlissa but with her so I just noticed a huge difference in tone and in my head the season two and this is not a season two review of course but just as a comparison when I think of Merlin's tone and kind of the slightly humorous aspect mixed with the serious aspect and that sort of thing a lot of the storylines and the kind of tone we were getting started in season two and it reminds me a bit of like how you perceive a franchise or a show or a film one way until you actually go back and remind yourself, oh, it wasn't always like that. And I'm going to give you an example. People obviously like you can't imagine Star Wars without Yoda. Like he is literally like one of the poster characters of, of that franchise. And yet he wasn't introduced until the second film. Uh, Castiel from Supernatural can't i mean i've never watched it but i imagine he's very popular <laughs> um can't imagine the show without him and yet he wasn't introduced until several seasons into the show and became um indispensable a same thing uh with uh blaine from glee who was not introduced until season two and the list goes on and on and i think with merlin season one was still i think trying to find its feet with tone a lot of tonal things were set up that I think were just kind of dropped and the show became a lot cheekier I think a lot more humorous like I said in season two we have our first musical cue of do 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 like you don't have that in season one I promise you go look for it it's not there and I think that overall season one was much more serious which is bizarre when you think about the fact that it was the one that aired the earliest in terms of like what time it would air in the evening. Some of the episodes even coming on air before six o'clock in the evening, which is very early in the UK to be showing TV that, you know, might have violent themes or whatever. 
And I mean, Momo, what do you think? I mean, I don't think that there was really much humor in. I mean, we laugh about Uther and stuff, but that's not meant to be humorous. Like, <laughs> there's very little break from the drama. It's pretty consistent drama, drama, and of course, no humor episodes. There's no comedic yeah. episodes at all. That's true. Yeah, and of course, you know, uh, we'll discuss this, I'm sure, at a later date, but obviously no two-parters. That was something that they were forced to do by the network, unfortunately. That I mean, not for... Yeah, you know. I mean, they didn't start until... I mean, they had this one two-parter in season two, and then they started yeah. really doing it season three forward. Yeah. But, yeah. Season two was like an accidental two-parter, because they're not even called the same name, but they kind of led they on. They are. Yeah, Season no, it's the fires of Edo Sholas and the last. Oh shit! Sorry, you're talking about Beauty and the Beast. Sorry. Yes, I thought... I'm talking about the Beauty. I th- and the Beast. No, because I always because I always think of twelve and thirteen as a sort of accidental two parter as well no, because it, li- it literally follows straight on. Um, but no, I, I was think... talking about the Beauty and the Beast oh, in the yeah, middle sorry. of the season, which is also the only time they had a two parter in the middle of the season. Yeah, true. All the other two parters are season openers or season endings. I mean, don't don't get me don't get me wrong, guys. We're going to discuss the amount of waste that that episode duo produced in the middle of season two when we oh, get there. Um, but, but yeah, so in terms of season one, I just think that the tone feels very serious, and you know, um, kind of segueing into that a little bit more. I think that. Uh, Part of the reason why the tone, I think, feels so serious is because we're coming off of the back of this, what I keep saying, the prequel we never had. And that is the biggest elephant in the room for me for season one, is that I think this narrative, they either wanted to do more with it or maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But there's so many mentions. I feel like every episode review we did this year, we mentioned about the 20 years earlier plot line. Like most of them, I feel we had something to say about it, unless the episodes didn't involve Uther at all. And, you know, this is a good chance for me to rant about it, I guess, because I feel very, very cheated. I wish that we had really taken all that potential and carried it forward. And, you know, we're going to talk about Uther and Gaius uh, at some point, I think, in this in this segment. But I really get the feeling that they wanted to make those characters more central to the show. I don't know how that isn't a thing when Gaius has so much mystery around him. And bear in mind how many people in season one know who he is. I mean, go forward even to seasons, you know, three and four, etc. How many people do we meet that are guest characters that have any connection to Gaius? Whereas this time we had Edwin, we had Nimue, who knew him before the show started and have some kind of history with him. Oh, and the dragon, of course. And and Hooneth, I mean. Yeah, and Hooneth. And, you know, even like, you know, Gaius visits the dragon. No one else visits the dragon apart from Gaius. So yeah. And Gaius that, only does it this once, doesn't he? Yeah, that's a big deal to me. You know, that's like a really important plot point that, you know, just kind of his whole history with magic, his history with Uther, the entire thing with Arthur's birth, I feel is just really swept under the rug. It's brought up so many times in season one, how Igraine died or the night of Igraine's death. And in season two, we have just one episode dedicated to it. She is not brought up at all at any other point in this show, uh, um, in season two, which I just find very, very strange. Mm-hmm. And how they just dumped that storyline right in the middle of the season, following 
what I thought was a really impressive build-up. I mean, Excalibur was just like mind-blowing in terms of how tense it was. And it's just such a shame. Again, really, really serious themes ha- like that we have in this season, which I really appreciate. I I like the humor, but I like that things felt a bit more cohesive. Like even the you know even though we may have had ridiculous um, low stake scenarios like the moment of truth, <laughs> um, it was still kind of you know things were happening and they were serious for the people involved they weren't just there to make the audience laugh like you know trolls and goblins and things um and i feel as though we really missed that going forward and i think it was more about kind of spectacle and how much cgi can we throw in there and how many jousting battles can we have and that kind of stuff you know and just the foundation that they laid i think was just kind of wasted even though there was a you know the quality of the material wasn't always amazing i think that the acting improved i think that the cinematography improved and in part i think the storytelling improved but really i think these earlier seasons are more rewatchable than the ones going forward because i don't know what do you think Oh, don't ask me what I think. <laughs> uh, Let's start with the twenty years earlier then. Twenty years earlier, what do you yeah, think that, about that? That that should have been that should have been a thing. I would I wanted at least one episode. You know what? This would have been a good two parter. Yeah. <laughs> to do um, about the twenty years earlier thing, and you could like. Make it just a part flashback episode where like something is happening in the present and then you do like do it Medici style. You have something happening in the present and then you have flashbacks to the past. But then again, oh my I, also God. Think, I, I also think that they could have done this throughout the entire show. Like there are other shows that that make use of this of this technique. And I, I always love them like uh, Psych, if anyone has ever seen this show has done this uh, religiously for the first couple of seasons where you always start the episode with a flashback to when the main protagonist was still a kid and then something that he that he did in this flashback would translate back to what's happening in the present of the show and i think if you they could have incorporated that into merlin but then of course they would have had to have a whole uh, other cast of characters that yeah. would be the the young versions of Uther and Gaius and Degrain and what else? Like that would have been so of, cool. That would have been so cool. But oh probably, my god! But it probably would have killed the budget, and that's why they that's why they didn't do it. But I still feel like they could have done it in a later season. Just dedicate one or two episodes to this to this backstory. But I think that by season two. No, actually, season two still had the had the potential to do it, but like by season three, the ship had sailed. Like by season three, it would have been too late. They should have yeah. done. It. They should have done it in season one, or at the very latest, sometime in season two, because like you can sort of uh, make a case for like keeping the tension of not knowing exactly what happened. Yeah. In season one, and then once they were confirmed for season two, they could have been like, "All right, let's do it now." 
Exactly. I I feel like like they should have done this. Think about the way Once Upon a Time does it, where they jump around in the timeline. So, like, you wouldn't have to know that Morgana is Uther's daughter because you could have, in the earlier seasons, scenes with her already at Camelot or just scenes where it's not mentioned, you know, that, like, that's who she is. And then when we find out who she is... I mean, it is never mentioned. Like... The only time it is literally mentioned is in season three when Uther confesses to Gaius. So unless we watch Uther having sex with Morgana's mother, we would never have known. Like there is, there is no reason for us to. Yeah, but like, yeah, I guess. But I think that you know because you have a long timeline in which you could play with. So for example, you could have scenes between Uther and Igraine before Arthur's even born like maybe when they first met like and you can do comparisons like and this is what's so gorgeous about it is like like in Once Upon a Time you could have comparisons between what's happening in the past timeline or in that show the alternate fairy tale version and what's happening in the real world or the present timeline so you know you could have Uther and Igraine compared to Arthur and Gwen or like that kind of stuff and you could have all the comparisons so in theory, you could have a whole storyline where we see Uther cheating on a grain and then we kind of connect the dots, but we don't have to see that version of the timeline until we know that Morgana is Uther's daughter, yeah. like that kind of stuff, you know? And yeah. I think that it's just, there was, yeah, like you said, I so think, much room to play with. Yeah, I think another show that, that played a lot with this and did it well was Lost, for example. Yeah, I think Lost it's the same played writers. with this a lot and only revealed what it wanted you to know about a character's past when it was relevant to the current story or when it wanted to shock when it wanted to introduce a plot twist or something like there was a lot that we didn't know about characters until it became relevant to the plot in some other way exactly so, yeah there are there are definitely examples of of this being done before but now that we think about this it's just American TV shows that do it. Yeah, that's <laughs> at <true>. Netflix. <laughs> it's not yeah. the BBC. It's not the BBC. Yeah, it's I mean it is it is very, very much not the format that A was popular at the time, B that they would have done because it would have been too risky, and C that would have been cost effective. But in retrospect, we can see yeah. how amazing it would have been. And look, at the end of the day, like we've said, it wouldn't work long term because the show is about Merlin, Colin Morgan's Merlin, his relationship with Arthur and yeah. him dealing with that. It's not about the younger people, but I just think that it is such a waste. And, you know, had they not made such a big deal of introducing all of these themes in season one, it maybe wouldn't have bothered me. And funny enough, it didn't bother me when I first watched the show. Of course it didn't. I was younger and I didn't care about that kind of stuff. Yeah. But now that I'm watching it a little more closely and I'm noticing these things, I'm just like, why did they drop all of this? Was it just because, like, I genuinely, the more I think about it, the more I honestly think that when season two, when they came to write season two, they built up a relatively big fan base from season one. The show did relatively well, enough that they got picked up and were given a bigger budget for season two. And I honestly think that for the majority of things, they just decided to reset. They were like, imagine that this is just season one all over again. We can just start from scratch. Because the very few things carry over continuity-wise, characterization-wise. Like I said, even when you look at Arthur and Gwen's relationship, they basically behave as if they're starting from scratch. 
and as if they've had no prior connection before. Um, Merlin and Arthur are basically like they they definitely have that kind of old married couple like bickering thing about them already but it's not something that people that only tuned into season two would you know would have been lost about as like oh he's a servant that makes complete sense but i think that because they kind of got given this bigger budget they wanted to try out all these things they just kind of were like yeah we're gonna forget about season one and i have this to say don't (laughs) (laughs) just don't do it but i would really love to hear from our listeners uh to see whether you agree with us that the tone of season one, even though it shouldn't feel as dark as seasons four and five in a way, in other ways, it actually has a very similar kind of feel to it and doesn't really feel like the season's going forward. And I wonder if it's just us or just me. I would really love uh, those of you that comment regularly to tell us if you agree, because I'd love to kind of, I feel like this, this kind of stuff, I, I feel like I'm stumbling around in the dark a bit because I don't see this discussed in fandom spaces like these sorts of things like tone structure, because I feel like they're more like filmy things that people don't really care about. So it's like, come talk to us, please. (laughs) Momo, do you have any observations about kind of overall themes or structural things or overall plot points? Not really. I mostly have a character specific observations for for season one like honestly until you said the whole thing about the the tone being actually um rather sinister i hadn't noticed because i don't notice these things like i honestly also hadn't really paid attention to how seasons four and five have become more serious and and sort of more sinister than the other seasons i'm like now in hindsight i'm like yeah actually you're right because season two and three have these more of these comedy episodes even season four has the comedy episode because servant of two masters is basically season four's comedy episode yeah kind of Um, yeah there's there's no argument about that and i don't know if i don't think season five has one no Um, (laughs) unless you count the joke that arthur died in merlin's arms whilst just finding out about his magic hours beforehand (laughs) i can laugh about it now I can barely laugh. So anyway, I I don't really have uh, thoughts about about things like that. I'm more I have more of the character and character relationship thoughts. Um, and obviously we we kind of have beaten this horse to death, but we are also aware that the order of episodes perhaps isn't the best. But the problem is, is that we can't actually just lift episodes and move them in their entirety because there are certain things that can't like that like a little plot point that is important for the space that it's in and can't just be lifted and moved for example and so it doesn't actually work just reshuffling them you'd have to go in and make actual structural and story changes in order for to make any sense whatsoever So, so for example an episode like the moment of truth the stakes Merlin feeling like he's safe enough to trust Arthur with his magic and wanting to tell him and in the end it all goes to ship. Perfect for the end of the season or the end part of the season. Going to a farm and hashtag farm problems, not appropriate for the end of the season. So, but they're both in the same episode. And so you can't just lift moment of truth and put it as episode four because that would be outrageous. So that's the thing. You kind of, 
that frustrates me because I feel like they they do some things right and then some things just don't fit. And I often have and I've used this analogy before, but sometimes I feel like with this show in season one is not the only culprit of this. I feel like they were writing the show by throwing darts at a wheel of plots. I knew it's, you were going to bring up the wheel of plots. I just I knew it. Um, so I think that we're going to discuss some character and uh, shippy or relationshipy stuff now. So, yes, let's get into it. Yes. All right. So at first, uh, I, I just sort of uh, wrote these down as they came to me after just rewatching uh, the last episode. So Guy has this relationship with Merlin. And I just just to flashback, when Merlin arrived and a few episodes into the season, Gaius was wary of him. Like, maybe passably fond, but he didn't really know what to make of Merlin, what to do with him, because Gaius is like a million years old and suddenly he has a teenage adoptive son. But then that changed pretty quickly, and by the end of season one, we have established that Gaius feels like a dad to Merlin. Like, he has definitely parental feelings towards Merlin. He's even ready to kill for him, like he tries to kill Edwin. And he's ready to die for him at the very end. And that's just, like, I know I'm not Gaius's biggest fan by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> um, but I still like that we had some character development and some, like, uh, relationship development in this, in this season between him and Merlin, where we could watch them sort of become this, uh, pseudo father son or grandfather son mentor mentee duo even though Gaius wasn't mentoring Merlin the things that I wanted him to mentor Merlin in but I guess it still sort of counts yeah <laughs> <laughs> I honestly think that Gaius and Merlin's relationship um apart from like I would say Gaius and Merlin's relationship was the most important relationship plot wise for season one and i think that again the foundation was laid i think for that relationship to carry the show and i think that and we'll get on to Merlin and arthur shortly but i think that perhaps they didn't intend for Merlin and arthur to take off as much as it did perhaps because really they don't have that much screen time in season one like comparatively and i think that with Merlin and Gaius who have many scenes together on a weekly basis and often you know it kind of became a tradition that they end up like they just end the end the episodes you know like that's just their thing yeah like you said it's a bit I don't don't know if I would have had Gaius kind of trust Merlin like as quickly as he did or at least be willing to lay down his you know or like say oh oh you're like a son to me like you know six episodes in or something like that like yeah, yeah. I think that's a little bit ridiculous but um this, this I that, that's the thing with like that's one thing that I will say is that especially the first half of the first season was so incredibly fast paced for character and relationship development that it's just sort of that's what throws me off the most like how quickly Arthur and Merlin sort of develop a rapport and how fast Arthur is willing to risk all sorts of things for Merlin and vice versa yeah I completely agree with you on that which is again it's it's just so bizarre how you don't feel these things when you watch it I mean did you feel these things when you first watched it I don't think you no, did because we I'm, only I'm sure I didn't feel these things but then again I watched it 
10 years ago, so I don't remember yeah. what things I felt. <laughs> but I also think it's important to remember, as I've mentioned before, that we are supposed to, quote unquote, watch these with a week's break in between. That does make a difference. I think yeah. when you're watching something live, it makes a huge difference to how you experience things, oh, you know, because, Definitely. yeah, I mean, even... I mean, as a casual viewer, forget it. Like, you've already forgotten what their names are by the time you get to the next Saturday night. But as a fandom person, think about all the headcanons you're making in between each episode. Think about all the fic you're writing, all this. So in your head, it's probably been 10 years since the last episode passed. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's complete. I mean, but yeah, even I will say that Valiant is a little bit ridiculous. Funnily enough, I would have easily swapped Valiant and Mark of Nimue. No questions asked. Nothing changed. Nothing removed. I think they should have been swapped. Because... Arthur actually doesn't really see Merlin that much in Mark of Nimue. Like he just kind of feels a bit irritated by him. Merlin has some yeah. time off and he does and he's just like, oh, sorry about the mess. Merlin's not been in today. And they have very little interaction. I think even having like that little gap between the first episode and Valiant would have done a world of good for my sanity. <laughs> just yeah. to The only uh, thing that, that would have had to be changed is like uh, the line from Guy is like, so how was your first day as the prince's servant? I think he says, how was your first week as Arthur's servant? So it could maybe still work. I think he said, I feel like he says day, but yeah. He, we'll check, said, we'll if check. If he says yeah, yeah. week, then yeah, that'll work. I had this note as well that their relationship was forced close very early in the season and I mean, I understand that all the Mirtha shippers rejoice at how quickly these two boys, you know, fell for each other or whatever. I agree that it would have been much more interesting. Like, I think you said this at some point. I hope it stayed in one of the episodes, even though I don't remember which one it was. Or would it Probably been? Mirtha. I think it stayed in Mirtha, yeah. Um, is that it would have been a lot more interesting to watch Merlin actively dislike Arthur for at least half a season before they start to respect each other or before Merlin starts respecting Arthur begrudgingly and sort of feels like, okay, I'm voluntarily saving this dude's life and not just because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. But yeah, instead we were supposed to believe that Arthur would take his servant's word over a night by episode two and risk his own life for that servant by episode four, which I feel like is very rushed. On the other hand, and I know I touched on this in the actual episode review of uh, Le Mort d'Arthur is, uh, when Merlin is saying goodbye to Arthur in that in that episode, like I feel like that is that is a good moment. Like they can now have some of this of this banter that everyone loves. You know, sometimes they can have this banter that everyone loves, and they both will know that it's all in good fun and that they actually sort of respect each other as much as Arthur, you know, can respect someone of lower standing or as much as he can consider them sort of as an as an equal, because I still think that while Arthur has developed, he still thinks of Merlin. He's still very aware that Merlin is his servant. And, you know, I, I know he keeps joking about, like, you can't talk to me like this. I'm a prince, you're a servant. And the the longer the show goes on, the more it loses its bite, basically. Like, the, the, the longer the show goes on, the less he means it, because he actually values Merlin's opinion. But you can see the, the beginnings of that at the end of this season. While he still means it, but you can see sort of this, this spark in him where he's like, well, you know, actually Merlin, Merlin is pretty good 
at at some things sometimes, and sometimes he has good things to say. So maybe he's not that bad. Exactly. Just like Momo said, I did mention this briefly in the Mirtha shipping episode that we did, but my retrospective dream for this pairing would have been um, A, for uh, Merlin and Arthur to have met at the very end of the Dragon's Call. That was my first requirement. (laughs) Um, And that they would have had their first meeting at the very end and Merlin getting thrown into the dungeons would have been the end of episode one. And then I would have had uh, Merlin figuring out through his interactions with others and witnessing Arthur and like not becoming Arthur's servant yet. So he doesn't actually have that close, intimate contact with him. He would have noticed through other things like Arthur, yeah, stepping in or speaking up for Gwen when she's accused of having magic and clearly doesn't have magic, you know, and then in the midpoint of season two, uh, season one, actually choosing to save Arthur's life, not doing it just by pure instinct. And then slowly realizing, you know what, this dude's all right, but Arthur's still very much finding him an inconvenience, a burden. And then slowly, but surely by the end of the first season, it's Merlin who has these great, great feelings for Arthur. And Arthur is just completely nonplussed by Merlin, which makes his treatment of Merlin at the beginning of season two more, like it makes more sense that they really have now this unbalanced relationship that it leaves you wanting more at the end of season one because you can see the progression from Merlin's side. It's sort of like it's sort of like anyone that has watched Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. um, Fitz and Simmons, like we find out at the end of season one that Fitz is in love with Simmons and um, we don't really get her reciprocation of those feelings for a very very long time i wouldn't have had it that long like i would have had arthur reciprocate merlin's feelings for him by the end of season two so give them a season each to kind of get to you know appreciate the other but arthur would definitely need longer and i think that then you know those feelings where merlin is saying you know everything i do is for him but he thinks i'm an idiot by the time we get to season two have carry so much more weight because unfortunately it's sad but it's not sad for the right reasons it's sad because we know that this is wrong like it feels wrong arthur's already done so much for merlin uh whereas if it had actually happened where he doesn't like him that much at this point um ending season two with an episode like the moment of truth similar or like the poison chalice where arthur goes out of his way to save merlin's life would have been so satisfying but i think for me with this ship it is one of those things where i can so easily overlook all of these flaws because i really just feel like if you look, I mean, it's sort of like if you look at them as if they're a graph and they have all these blips where things don't really match up, especially in season one. But the overarching kind of journey is so lovely to look at that. Yeah, you can watch episode one and you can watch episode 13 and you're like, wow, they have come such a long way. And there are little moments where I feel you can see the progression. Like I mentioned it specifically in Gates of Avalon. That to me is a big turning point for the two of them because they're slowly having 
like some warmer dialogue there's a bit of teasing Arthur's like oh come on like cover for me and it's and I know you said Momo that oh I would never show this episode if I wanted to promote Martha as a ship because you know of this and this and this but for me it was all about the smaller moments it was about how well look how much Merlin's willing to do for Arthur at this point he's really starting to fall for his charm and oh he's a good guy and yeah I'll I'll go in the stocks for him no problem you know and I think they have these little moments throughout the season which really build such a I mean moment of truth Arthur TM (laughs) is so soft (laughs) like so soft and I'm just like that even that to me makes sense for even though I don't like the farm stuff like for the point of the season in which it's in that he's willing to kind of do that uncomplaining is I mean it really really works for them and I think regardless of the storytelling these two have honestly that lightning in a bottle chemistry which really as much as the film critic in me hates to admit it, none of that other fucking stuff matters. Like it doesn't matter that sometimes the pacing is shit. It doesn't matter that if, if you can get genuine chemistry between people that just lights up the screen, none of the other stuff actually matters because they really can make you believe it on their own. I think that's why Martha became such a prominent part of the show going forward i mean let's like actually sit and think about this for a second do they really have that much screen time in season one i know they have a lot in like labyrinth of gedriff and stuff but you think about you know mark of nimue they pretty much don't interact at all lancelot they pretty much don't interact at all uh remedy to cure all ills they pretty much don't interact at all and to kill the king they pretty much don't interact at all and in a bunch of the other episodes like beginning of the end etc they have a couple of moments together but really nothing that's just about them so they're really not in this season much at all and yet going forward i mean you get to season five (laughs) and they're in a lot of scenes together so i wonder if it's just that they actually kind of saw what magic they created on screen and they were like well we need more of that because ratings (laughs) or maybe the writers just that was their attempt at developing their relationship whatever kind of relationship it is that you know in the first season they don't spend that much time together because they're not that close yet it's just obligation and duty while going forward it grows into a genuine friendship yeah i suppose you could be right about that i just don't really give the writers credit for anything no, because i just not. Don't, that was, I just that don't. was accidental that was purely accidental i really did like i think season one again just going to the overall themes i think it was a very balanced season that's the word i'm looking for it was very balanced um everyone got a relative amount i mean gwen always gets shafted but let's just be honest she probably got more uh interesting stuff here than she ever got again so i think that you know everyone kind of got their moment to shine including the two older characters they don't really get that much time to shine in future seasons they really got it here and i think that took away rightfully or wrongly like whatever you feel about mirtha like it, it, it meant that they weren't in the spotlight necessarily and it was a lot more interestingly this is it's just coming to me now it was merlin's show Everyone else was his understudy in a way. It was his spotlight. Whereas I think that as time goes on, I mean, think about how many, you know, storylines 
Arthur gets. Like, the knights are Arthur's entourage. Gwen becomes Arthur's wife. Morgana becomes Arthur's sister. The show really actually shifts its focus. You know, like, we were always talking about, well, I didn't think that the show was going to end with Arthur's death because you know what? The show isn't called Arthur. <laughs> the show is called Merlin. And yet the sh- it kind of really shifted not only to be more about their relationship, but really they got a very equal amount of kind of development and that kind of stuff. And you could argue maybe with Arthur becoming king, he inadvertently got more of the development than Merlin, who never like his role never actually changes he starts as a servant and he ends as a servant and that's it so i think that you know he definitely i think got the most screen time and the most chance to shine in terms of you know him being his own character in season one but um i mean so what about our baby then (laughs) He (laughs) he is very much still a baby i think still still a baby at the end of season one I I can't quite see, you know, the inclinations of what what's to come for him yet. I think he definitely sees some of the wrongs in the world, but I think he's still pretty optimistic about life. Yeah, I mean, he has had an eventful couple of months or however long it's supposed to be. Like, he's learned that he has a destiny to keep Arthur alive and unite the land of Albion and bring back magic. He learned that he can't ever tell anyone he has magic or else he'll die. He learned that he can't even trust other people or creatures who have magic because they're all out for his or Arthur's head or to serve their own purpose. I feel just sorry for this poor boy who arrived in Camelot. He was so bright-eyed and eager to please and who already by the end of season one has killed several people and magical creatures, all in the name of saving Arthur or protecting people he loves, and who has just learned at the very end that the only other ally he thought he had, apart from Gaius and maybe Lancelot, didn't actually have birth. Like, also, Lancelot had to leave. Like, Lancelot is uh, an ally in thought, but not actually in action, because Lancelot's not there anymore. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he thought he had this other ally, the dragon, but the dragon didn't actually have Merlin's author's best interest in mind. He only had his own interests in mind. So... I mean, yeah, he Merlin is still sort of optimistic, but he's already learning to be jaded and just... I think he definitely has lost some of his spark that he had. Oh the yeah, beginning. yeah, for sure. Like this is this is the beginning of the I don't give a fuck about magical people. I only give a fuck about keeping Arthur alive, Merlin, that we know from season 5. This is the beginning of that Merlin. Yeah, I think like because if I was to pinpoint when I think things really start to change for Merlin. And I've read somewhere people are pinpointing it to the end of season four when he kills Agravain. I think it's a lot no, sooner than that. Much for, earlier than that. For me, I think it's a toss up between the moment when he is making the uh, little smoke dragon horse in Witchfinder and he has that moment where he is happy and then he looks down and remembers that he can't actually ever really like feel that happy about having magic that or a more major moment 1000% is when he lies for Arthur about 
his mother and Uther's role in her death and all that kind of stuff, because I think it's such a punch to the gut because he was so close to getting Arthur to find out who he really is. And probably, like I have said before, if things had gone well, would have told him shortly after. Can you imagine what that must have been like? And I don't think we're quite there yet in season one. But of course, let's not forget, he's fallen out with the dragon by the end of season one, uh, who he'll never speak to again. (laughs) (laughs) Until next episode. Yeah. um, And so... I think that's definitely an interesting point to leave the season on because they've been, you know, tight for the last 13 episodes, you know, um, without any real problems. Although, yeah, the dragon does kind of end up being a bit of a dragon ex machina, um, more so going forward, because I remember reading an article where they were like, well, now that the dragon's not around, Merlin's going to have to be doing things on his own. And it's like, <laughs> no, well... Merlin, Merlin gained the... Uh... Literally magical ability to call the dragon from wherever he is. Like that's that's the only reason they made Martin the Dragon Lord because they needed a way to call back the dragon whenever they, whenever Martin was in a corner where he couldn't figure out how to get out of otherwise. And also because they knew I like listening to him speak like that, so. Yeah. <laughs> I know you don't I'm, like I'm it. I'm really but I'd not like... a fan of the dragon speak. I just, <laughs> I, it just sounds so ridiculous, honestly. Like oh. all these fakes about how sexy Arthur finds him, just like nothing about this sounds sexy. Oh, I love it. I think it's really sexy. <laughs> nothing about it sounds sexy. Not even in Colin's voice. Nothing about it sounds sexy to me. But uh-huh. hey, it's That's fair. Right. Everyone gets to love what they like. Everyone yeah, gets right. to get their crank on to whatever. Exactly. Um, but I think for Merlin as a character in season one, I don't, I don't see a shift from happy Merlin to kind of verging on, you know, something else until, yeah, the moment I think when he realizes that the dragon has kind of been playing his own game the whole time, I think that's the first kind of chip in the mug for him in terms of his trust in people, because let's face it, the dragon was really the first person in Camelot who he did trust. Like, I mean, Gaius, but I think he, I think I would argue he connected with Kilgara very quickly because Gaius couldn't give him the answers he wanted. You know, he even said, if you can't help me, no one can. Well, the dragon helped. And, you know, funnily enough, when you're a lonely kid, you know, that's going to be really important for you. Yeah. And what you have to remember is that Kilgara did such a good job at manipulating Merlin into believing that Kilgara is the only one who can truly help him figure things out, that even though Merlin swore to loathe him for all eternity, he is the first one Merlin turns back to once he comes up against an enemy he doesn't know how else to conquer. So, like, Merlin is like, shit, I really only have the dragon to help me. Like, pretty much straight away. Exactly. Um, And I really don't feel as though Merlin is truly isolated yet. I think that this is one of those things that we're going to see more and more. And I think it's very hard to talk about seasons in isolation when you know what's coming. But I'm going to try to kind of really put myself in the position of, let's say there was never any more seasons 
we are starting to see like La Morte d'Arthur is a very pivotal episode and very much works as a finale unlike a lot of the other episodes throughout the season don't fit very well it couldn't have gone anywhere else because we really start to have him be isolated from people from someone he really thought he could trust and you know this guy is going to lose a lot more going forward, you know, because, well, let's oh, hang on. I mean, he's already lost his best friend, Will. He's already lost one of his, you know, one of his confidants, uh, Lancelot, who's just, you know, left. Um, going forward, he's, you know, going to, there are going to be a lot of friends that will come and go in his life, namely Gwen, who, you know, then will live in the castle much later, but will leave when he first meets him. And, you know, of course, he's going to experience a lot of loss going forward, not just in death, but Morgana, who he thought he could trust as a friend, is going to leave him to be, you know, do her evil things. Uh, Even Gwen, who was uh, arguably his best friend, you know, is going to get married and, you know, basically... Whatever they say, I don't really believe that they're all buddy buddy anymore, and she's so much higher above him in terms of class. Also, so I I'm I don't feel like they even are that close friends going forward from here on out. Like I feel like the no. peak of their friendship was in this season. Yeah, I think you. I think it's one of those things where, and I've seen this in other shows as well, where it's established really strong. And then you just kind of, because they decided to focus on other things, you're kind of expected to know that it's there. And they remind you of it. Like, you know, she helps him out in The Witchfinder. She, um, you know, he goes completely above and beyond for her, you know, in Queen of Hearts to save her life and is prepared to die for her. She comforts him when Gaius has been kidnapped in season four. There are moments and they're very sweet, but they're, but they're background moments and they're not you know we don't necessarily you know like for example yeah he sacrifices himself for her in queen of hearts but that episode is about arwen whereas in season one the mark of nimue was about merlin and gwen you know um so that is completely not the way that things are going and i mean in season five they like literally don't i think they don't even speak like (laughs) or if they do that they're not alone you know um and i mean we know how i feel about merlin and glenn i love them so much so (laughs) i just i i honestly am pining after my alternate reality in which the show was not a coward and just gave me some mid-game canon ships like i'm not asking them to end up together but give me mid-game merwin give me mid-game armor why is everyone a coward these days (laughs) i don't understand well not these days 10 years ago you made Lancelot and Gwen a mid-game ship. Literally the most end-game of any end-game in history. You made them a mid-game, but you couldn't just go there with Merwen. Like, you had half the ship there. <laughs> Why? <laughs> it just makes me sad, but there you go. Um. So yeah, Merlin is well on his way to becoming the jaded, miserable bastard that we will know him for at the end of the show. But so far, he's still pretty up on his luck. He saved Gaius's life. He's conquered the power of life and death, which is a power we will, of course, see mentioned again numerous times throughout the show. <laughs> I mean, that's just my assumption. I haven't seen season two, so I I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we also we also just know that Merlin is going to learn more magic and, you know, just 
really become this most powerful sorcerer in all the world in all the time ever <sighs> including yes. this very handy beaming trick that mary collins demonstrated in the very first episode that merlin hasn't figured out yet indeed okay so gwen um well, interestingly, we spent a lot of time talking about Gwen at the beginning of the episode for our talk back. And funnily enough, a lot of the complaints I had about her in that section don't really apply to season one because she's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> she is. And I think it's a testament to that. I don't rewatch season one that much. I honestly do rewatch seasons two and three more than the others. Um, And I think that, you know, I should probably rewatch more of season one. Because she is very cute and I do like the, you know, she kind of, she has a bit of the, I don't, um, interesting, I don't know if anyone's ever pointed this out, but for me she has a little bit of the manic pixie dream girl in her, just a little. She's kind of like, you know, kooky and interesting and I'm the one that's going to make everything better, you know? I think she kind of has a little bit of that, but not necessarily um, in the uh, overt quantities that you know you would see in characters mm. like um uh jess from new girl for example but i think she's just really adorable but this is the thing we just we don't really know much about her um although i guess probably we know more about her in this season than any other season yeah i that's that's one of my note i think that gwen has had a good arc in this season and it's probably even her best arc across all seasons like, um, I mean, she was forced into the role of Arthur's love interest and also becoming his teacher and personal cheerleader. But apart from that, uh, she was shown to be smart and capable. She was shown to be empathetic and kind and sweet. She cares about her family and her friends. And she's reasonable. She had, like, for the most part, she had character development and that she started out kind of innocent and naive i think and then had to learn that the world can be cruel like she was accused of magic and her father was accused of magic and killed her friends were put into grave danger several times and she had to watch them nearly die without being able to do anything so like uh, for example merlin in the poison chalice arthur in mortatur her father in mark of nimue Morgana in Remedy to Cure All Ill. So pretty much all of the main players that, you know, uh, Gwen might reasonably care about were uh, in grave peril at one point or another that she was even aware of it. Uh, she had crushes on Merlin and <laughs> my note says allegedly also Lancelot. <laughs> Uh, like, it's is- not allegedly my <laughs> get over it. <laughs> okay, let's as- let's assume she actually had a crush on Lancelot. Uh, Merlin didn't even notice that Gwen had a crush on him, or if he did, he he pretended very much not to notice. And Lancelot was banished, so that was really fun for her. <laughs> So I'd I'd argue that Gwen is probably one of the characters who suffered the most trauma and heartache this season, especially in relation to how much trauma she expected to happen to her, which is to say she didn't expect any trauma and heartache to happen to her. And then all of this shit happens after Merlin arrived in Camelot. And yet she came out stronger for it and still hopeful, you know. It either shows great strength of character or bad writing so 
I'm willing just to go with a great strength of character in Gwen's part because I want Gwen to be to be badass and awesome and capable because I think she is at least you know definitely smart and capable and caring yeah I don't really think though that the show cares much about Gwen's trauma because it's not really like we can read into it like we can read into the fact that oh despite all of these things she's still like hopeful but I actually think that the show uses Gwen's trauma as a plot device and then just forget about it yeah so sure it does it's not like I think it's good to read into that stuff to try and not go insane ourselves and be like oh my god what is this character but I just think that it's just not really something that the writers cared that much about. And they want her to be positive and all this. And yet, yeah, she's the one that's gone through some of the most crap in the whole of the show. And yet, yeah, it doesn't really seem to affect, like she doesn't even mention, like she only brings up her father's death. Like when she's like at Uther's feet, like in queen of hearts, she doesn't like ever talk about anything that's happened to her, which I just find a bit unbelievable. Like there's not being complaining. And then there's just amnesia. Like, she doesn't talk about it, which, I mean, that's because she never has any lines. But I'm just saying, like, she. <laughs> um, but, yeah, we like we like season one, Gwen. And I like reading season one, Gwen. I if I was to write again um, and even when I was writing, I tended to write Gwen with her season one characteristics because I think they are the most uh, enjoyable for people as witnessed by most people I've spoken to about Gwen so I don't know I mean she doesn't really have any defining characteristics going forward that's the problem so I think what we see like we see so little you know time jumps are the biggest problem for her (laughs) and others but mostly I would say for Gwen um because yeah, she just really, really suffers with those time jumps, man. <laughs> like, oh, I'm queen all of a sudden. <laughs> um, but yeah, Gwen is very cute. And I miss her old dresses. Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not being funny. Like, I don't blame Angel for not wanting to wear those costumes because they don't look very nice. And yeah, they like, so you know, like what Sifa wears, like it's very plain, but it actually fits her body in a way that, you know, doesn't like, like feel like like a sack of potatoes or that like at least feels as though it fits her you know um so i can like i would have liked something like that um you know in the in the plainer colors in the plainer materials i'm not saying that you know i wanted angel to feel like she was wearing a sack of potatoes when katie was wearing all these beautiful dresses but just maybe not lilacs and pinks and you know bright colors with beautiful corsets just maybe not that (laughs) especially when the corsets are on top of the dress exactly well let's just bounce straight to morgana then why not um i i think unlike you momo kind of liked morgana's arc in this season apart from her very strange scenes in the last episode but i find that the little dribs and drabs of information that we get about her magic is actually some of the more subtle storytelling we've gotten from Merlin um, with, you know, oh, give Morgana this tonic for her nightmares and, oh, I had this dream and all this kind of stuff. I thought it was really cleverly done. And I do agree with Lau when she mentioned that, you know, she thought Morgana was going to be this kind of princess in the tower. And, you know, she can play up to that for sure. But 
I yeah, I do like the fact that she kind of as stupid as she is sometimes, she, you know, actively puts herself in dangerous situations to do either what she thinks is right or to protect people. And I think that she's been, you know, she's a really pleasant character to watch. And I love her banter with people. I love her kindness, especially towards Merlin. And I think that especially in season one, she is definitely a really, really lovely character to watch. I really enjoy her here. Oh, yeah. I mean, I agree with all of that. My gripe is more that I feel a little bit like the writers wanted to have their cake and eat it. Like, they wanted to maintain that Morgana is starting to, uh, like, like her magic is making itself known. And, I mean, I'm wondering if that has anything to do with Merlin coming to Camelot or if it would have happened even if he hadn't arrived. Like... That would have been interesting to explore, in my opinion. And, like, I like these little things, these little developments of her magic slowly coming out. I just, what sort of bothers me is that they were trying to establish that Morgana is turning against Uther and thus turning evil. And yet, by the end of, uh, uh, to kill the king... Morgana has turned around completely again so that she would stay a good character for at least another season. And I'm just like, like, obviously she couldn't have killed Uther just yet. Like, Uther shouldn't have died just yet at the end of season one. But it would have been much more interesting if he had survived because some, because Merlin had saved him or because... Uther had managed to defend himself against Torin successfully, you know, that would have been much more interesting, I think, in the in the development of Morgana, rather than give me this sort of whiplash feeling of her just changing her mind every five minutes about what she wants to do. Yeah, that would have been interesting if he'd have actually gotten out of it. But then there's something so striking about that image of Torin being stabbed and it being revealed to be Morgana, there's something so powerful in that moment that yeah. I almost feel like I would have been robbed of it if it hadn't have happened. Um, but I guess for the story, but imagine, time, yeah, imagine it would how have... nice it would have been if Morgana actually hadn't been involved in the plot to kill Uther at this point, and she had actually been, you know, relatively, relatively innocent. And this had been her first proper kill, and that would have sort of messed her up. Oh, yeah. Imagine that, if it hadn't been Morgana who wanted to have Uther killed, if she had actually been a bystander who just happened to carry a dagger because Uther told her to always keep it on her in case she ever needed to defend herself, and then she uses this dagger to actually kill Uther's assassin. Like... Wow, that would have also been really good. Oh, I mean, oh, this is the thing. There are so many, like, like I, I get physically irritated when I think about all these things. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm sat here, actually, even though we're talking about something different, but because we're talking about Morgana, my mind is wandering to Armour, and I'm not going to get into it because we will have an Armour episode at some point, but I'm just thinking about them together 
And I'm just like, it could have been so good. (laughs) (laughs) And it just like, like their chemistry and the fact that it was so unexpected because you don't think like, it's not a ship that you would, you know, and just, yeah, all of the things that they could have done that would have been more interesting. But yeah, I agree. I don't know why they did it this way, especially, I mean, what I will say is that it's quite cool that Morgana ends the season confused and scared and begins the next season confused and scared with yeah. the attack on Camelot, which I guess is quite cool. And then we don't see her in Once and Future Queen and then Nightmare Begins is, you know, follows on very, very nicely from that, which I guess makes a lot of sense. Following on that, less so. <laughs> but um although I guess, you know, if we're going to talk about that, perhaps there's an argument to be made for The Nightmare Begins or or an episode similar being uh, the finale episode or part of the or I mean maybe 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 there would have been too much of that but maybe making uh, I don't really know how to say it properly but do you know how you said you wished that perhaps her vision in to kill the king would have been the first vision not uh, uh, not to kill the king sorry uh Le Mort de Arthur like, yes. that could have been her first vision. Like, imagine if it was kind of this two-parter episode where Morgana is revealed to have powers and everything else happens at the same time. Like, that would have been really, really cool. Mm-hmm. And then maybe not... Because what I find a little bit frustrating with Merlin is that we have a lot of, like, important things that happen. And there's a lot of important things that happen. But they seem to happen at really random places. So... Uh- like, for example, Excalibur, just episode nine. Um, Moment of Truth, episode 10. Just, I don't know why they do this. And I feel like it's, um, it, like, that could also just do with a bit of restructuring. But yeah, like you said, they have a plot point. They're really excited about it. And then they just kind of forget about it for a while. So it makes it seem a bigger deal than it is. They don't build. That's the problem. They don't build and then come to like a natural climax they just kind of attack you with a with a really dramatic episode and then they they, they just forget that it was ever a thing for ages like the repercussions of Excalibur don't actually come back properly to haunt us until the end of season two nearly so I'm just a bit like okay (laughs) why (laughs) um it just really irritates me and yeah what you said about Morgana and her kind of powers being a bit all over the place i do think that it's done better here than it is in season two i think that her progression of her having nothing versus regularly getting these visions and feeling very scared and alone at the end of season one works but like with the mirtha thing it has weird spikes that then don't reflect what happens going forward as well and it's just a bit just needs like a little tweak like, yeah. did no one proofread these scripts? <laughs> no, clearly not. Oh, um, so yeah, Uther and Morgana. Uther and Morgana. Love um, them. Really love them. I really love them. I still feel like it's, uh, roughly like at the end of the season, their relationship is roughly at the same point, um, where it started. Roughly, like Morgana sort of respects him, loves him, like a father thicker but will challenge him and will disobey if she feels it's necessary 
And they had their big showdown in the second to last episode. And afterwards, it was sort of returned to status quo, as far as both of them are concerned, at least. Like, I think both Uther and Morgana at this point feel like things have reset and they are starting over with things. Yeah, um, I think that the progression is there. You just need to kind of look for it because, for example, in episode one, there interactions are relatively cold he calls uh he calls himself her guardian by to kill the king they're having a very emotional heart to heart where he's telling her that she's the daughter he never had wink wink nudge nudge (laughs) um so i think that that is a very very nice progression but i just miss their kind of bickering and like i've said before if morgana had never turned out to be his daughter and you know we've kind of had those moments where he's like i've treated you like a daughter but if like all of that had never been a part of things i like would have not been that surprised like they could have played very much a married couple like they and the scene I'm thinking about specifically is in Poison Chalice when Arthur runs off and Uther is with Morgana. I don't know where he is, if he's in her chambers or he if he's in, in her Arthur. chambers. Yes. Yeah. And she's just and he's like, you know, um, I explicitly told him not to go. And, he, and like she's kind of laughing. And then he's like, I should have put him under lock and key. And she's like, you can't chain him up every time that he disagrees with you. And she sits down and, you know, um, she's, you know, kind of got that wifely tone almost. She's like, you know, Arthur's old enough to make his own decisions. You know, you can't control him your whole life. And I remember that scene always making me feel like, oh, my God, like if, you know, if Morgana was older or if this was a different show, you know, I think they would have played so well off of one another. They have a really interesting dynamic, um, you know, before we knew what was actually coming. Um, yeah, I but, honestly, yeah. I... I shipped them a little bit. Like I yeah, I used there to are, I used to, yeah. There's this there's this story, this uh modern AU reincarnation thing, um, that was written after season one, Defender of Defenders of the Realm. And in that story they actually do get together and I um I listened to the pot fic and I was like at the end I was like, you know what? <laughs> I think I ship it. There was a big ship. I mean, it was a big. I don't know how big it was, but I remember there being a, quite a few shippers of Uther and Morgana back in the day. Um, so yeah, I think that there's definitely something there. And I mean, they they have a lot of screen time together. I mean, their whole progress, like with Merlin and Arthur's and many others, is a, is a little muddled, you know, because of the order of episodes and stuff. But um, overall. I think season one is their best season. Um, apart from like, I I like three because they're so nice to each other, but it's all fake. So <laughs> yeah. it makes me very sad. But here they actually have genuine conversations. I love their conversation in Gates of Avalon where they're walking down the corridor and they're just chatting like, oh, I missed that. You know, that that was really nice. And I think that's another thing that season one was really kind of because it was still finding its feet a lot of these scenes like a lot of the dialogue feels a little more colloquial like a little more casual even like Morgana saying something like oh I've 
I know girls like this, she'll just like string him along and then dump him, you know, like all words to that effect. And I'm like, it feels like very modern kind of language. I feel like as they went forward, they really kind of made everyone a lot grander in their demeanor, in their speech. No more thriller jackets here, you know. (laughs) And I think that that is definitely something that I've noticed. But yeah, they just have a very easy chemistry. I like them a lot in this season. Um, So Uther's other kid. That guy. <laughs> yeah, the other kid. The other guy. Yeah, um, but, yeah, but their relationship. Um, I love, I love how their relationship is progressing in this season. Like, Uther shared at least two heartfelt scenes with Arthur, in which he showed Arthur how much he cares about him. Like, there was Excalibur, and then there was the the series at the season finale. And we also saw Uther being an incredibly strict and demanding father and king towards Arthur. But we learn throughout the season that Uther truly believes that these are lessons that Arthur needs to learn and can only learn through these through these strict means. You know, if uh, if Arthur isn't just listening to what Uther is saying, so Uther will take other measures. Yeah. Uh, um, and I am really interested because I was thinking about this earlier while we were talking about how I almost wish that that their relationship kind of kept getting better and better and better and better until we get to the point where the mother thing is revealed and it would have been a real oh, it like been so good because they have that like spat in Beauty and the Beast like you know, in season two and in season one, they have, you know, Excalibur, but it's quickly followed by Labyrinth of Gedref, which is obviously quite a tumultuous like episode for them, followed by Le Morte d'Arthur, which is very much Uther's big lament, you know, to how much, you know, he would miss Arthur if he was gone, you know. And I think that if that had been done a little bit more kind of smoothly and if they'd had a bunch of scenes in, uh, in the end part of season one, the beginning of season two, like that arc would have i think worked so well especially since you know but interestingly enough maybe i'm wrong but i i don't think i am um i don't think they have a scene together in the pilot uther and morgana do i don't think uh, i think uther and arthur's first scene is when he pats him on the shoulder at the uh at the tournament and he goes i know you will make me proud I don't think they have a scene on their own before that. He's like mentioned and stuff, but so it's interesting how it's kind of, I guess, I don't know if we're meant to infer from that, that, you know, their relationship either wasn't going to be as important or it's they're underplaying how important their, their relationship is going to end up being, you know? Yeah, that's possible. Or just, you know, to show, you know, distance between them, how they're, how they are not a close-knit father-son duo. Yeah. And then, you know, think to, you know, later when we see them, you know, sitting and chatting and eating together and all this kind of stuff, which is so cool. Actually, interestingly enough, Uther eats on his own in season one all the time. And in season two, he eats with Arthur. I've just realized this. I don't think Arthur eats with Uther at all in season one. And after La Morte to Arthur, when Uther nearly lost him, maybe he started asking Arthur to dine with him. Aww. It's so sweet. Like, that's his way of being like, do you want to, you know, eat with me? Uh, You know, 
no big deal. Um, just, you know, thought you might be hungry. <laughs> he's trying to... <laughs> he did that thing, like, in Beauty and the Beast, where he's like, you will join me for dinner. That's not a request. <laughs> and Arthur's like, okay. I was like, where's this scene in... Merlin's Beauty and the Beast, then I realized you meant Disney's Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) This is very confusing. Um, But yeah, like, if he had that moment, like, to try and do the no big deal version of, you know, that he actually has feelings. Um, But yeah, I think it would have been interesting to uh, actually have Uther have a real love interest in the show and how that would have affected his and Arthur's relationship for real. Yes. Um, But at the same time, I kind of enjoy that he's the one character. Actually, I say that Morgana doesn't have, I mean, no, fuck it. I'm counting Alvar as a potential love interest. He counts. So she had one. Yeah. Um, Uther, I don't think I can really count Katrina as a love interest seeing as she wasn't real any of the time. So he doesn't actually have one. And I, and I kind of appreciate it from the point of view of like, you know, can someone just not be dating in this show? Even Gaius has someone. <laughs> um, even Gaius. Yeah. I think he's he much old. more attractive than Gaius. Just yeah. on an objective level. <laughs> um, so that would have been interesting to see how that would have affected his and Arthur's relationship and whether Arthur would have been happy about, you know, there being someone else there, especially if they'd gotten closer. That would have been really cool, but that didn't happen. So <laughs> there you go. But at the end of season one, we know that Uther loves Arthur very much. And we also know that he cannot carry him across a courtyard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it took four nights to carry him because Arthur is a full grown man in chainmail <laughs> i'm surprised he managed to carry him that far i mean to be fair percy manages to carry merlin on his own without anyone else's help merlin isn't wearing chainmail when he's being carried also, like, he's merlin... carrying the burdens of the world <laughs> and oh, <laughs> anything else that segues us to Arthur. <laughs> that that segues us to Arthur. Somehow there was a segue there. Chainmail. Chainmail. Cha- the chainmail is the segue. Um, well, I guess the first thing we can mention in regards to chainmail is Arthur doesn't wear a lot of it in season one because no, he, actually- he has an actual wardrobe. <laughs> he has clothes in season one. I will forever cry about, like, it must have burned down when the dragon attacked at the end of season two. That's the only (laughs) explanation I will accept. That is absolutely hilarious. (laughs) Arthur has, do you know what, probably had one of the most in-depth arcs this season, I think. I mean, you know, he's really a different person by the end, really. I... Yeah, I in my notes I have Arthur has learned valuable lessons, TM. <laughs> he has learned that servants are valuable, independent people. He has learned that people who are of lower standing than him still deserve respect. He has learned to be less of a bully. 
And I will say that if we were supposed to believe that the author we first meet in the first episode was all there was to him, like a loudmouth bully who abuses servants for fun and who also abuses his title to demand entitlement, then yeah, he's he's definitely had a an even bigger development in terms of character changes. But I think that from what I understood of the show, that we were supposed to believe that Arthur, while he's a privileged white boy, has also always had a good heart. He was just good at hiding it or not listening to it. And also probably didn't entirely know how to use his privilege. Um, which means that he had to first learn to understand his privilege. Like, yeah. the, the reason I'm saying is that no one changes that much in such a short amount of time if they didn't already have a penchant for being good. An author couldn't have been as much of an entitled brat as we've seen in the first episode if he's willing to believe the word of his servant, whom he doesn't even like, by episode two. Like, it just doesn't work that way. So, um... I think he has a really good arc in this season, although, yeah, I find it really hard to judge who's had the the most impactful arc now that we, like, at first I was about to say that uh, it probably would have been Gwen or Merlin, but now that we've talked about them some more, I'm really torn because I feel like they probably all had really good arcs, actually, yeah. in this season, and, um, but the thing is that, uh, even though I'm supposed to pretend that I don't know that there are more seasons coming, but I do know that there are more seasons coming. And I don't think Arthur gets as much development from here on out as he did in this season. Yeah, not really. Maybe season three, but two kind of passed him by a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I might, I might just eat my words by the time we get around to reviewing all of these, but um, yeah, I just feel like, he, I mean, season two, like like we said, or like you said, is sort of a do-over of season one. So they repeat a lot of the stuff that Arthur already learned, which means that season two is basically season one Arthur revisited. And it just, that, that doesn't count. If he's relearning lessons that he already learns, then that's not character development. Exactly. Really. I mean, we have a couple of little bits, but obviously we're not going to be discussing season two, so we'll get to yeah. that um, no. afterwards. But I think that... Uh, you're right. I think Arthur's dickishness comes predominantly from his privilege. I don't think he's really a bad person. He's just spoiled, uh, which is interesting because his father doesn't really take notice of him. So I'm surprised that he is that spoiled. And it might just be that the people around him spoil him, like like his peers. Um, but in terms of like, you know, I think there is something though to be said for Arthur that I would love to have seen a prequel of what Arthur was like before Merlin came along, like be, before the show started, because like we said, we kind of see him with some of his lackeys, but I get the impression he doesn't really have friends. And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I mean, apart from Morgana, probably no one ever spoke back to him before Merlin. And I think that there's something about Merlin and I'm not even trying to talk about this necessarily in romantic way even though that is sort of how i view it but i think there's something about merlin that enchants him because he isn't used to that like he just doesn't 
Like he can't comprehend that someone would speak to him that way. Like you can see he's kind of baffled and I think he's intrigued and he's irritated by Merlin in equal measures because Merlin does seem a bit clumsy and Arthur's a very efficient character actually you know he's a soldier he's a he's a knight he knows what he's doing you know he's very good at the things he does and Merlin seems a bit buffoonish so he's a bit annoyed by him but he I think it's kind of if you look at it from the point of view of how lonely Arthur has been and if you see how no one's really challenged him before and then all of a sudden there's this dude that is doing nothing but challenging him and you know proving in a way by challenging him that he gives a shit sort of, you know, because he's, he's still, you know, he's, he's being his servant, you know, like that's not, that's not any small feat, you know, (laughs) like to be, to be Arthur servant, even though it's dressed up as this big prize, which is a bit weird. Um, And I think that he kind of, I think it's just such a new experience for him to actually have someone like that in his life, which is, again, probably part of the reason why he notices Gwen like so much in season two is because she kind of embodies similar traits. And yeah, Arthur definitely responds well to people who talk back to him. And I'm if I was a psychologist, I'd be able to dig into that a bit deeper. But I don't really know what that means for him as a person (laughs) i guess i like if i was to kind of dig really deep i'd say it had something to do with the fact that he didn't have a mother growing up and didn't have that like firm but loving guidance does that make any sense yeah it would be it would be really interesting to find out what arthur would have been like if he green had lived I mean, obviously it would be an entirely different Camelot because magic wouldn't be outlawed, probably. Uh, But just the changes in Arthur would probably be so interesting. Exactly. And, you know, should we, I guess, have a quick, a very quick chat about where Arthur stands on magic as of now in season one? Uh, Is he he even thinking about magic, truthfully? Is it even on his mind apart from when it's brought his attention? I don't really think it is. Honestly, I don't think it is. Like, it will pop up occasionally, like in the moment of truth, for example, or when uh, uh, Mark of Nimue, you know. But um, I don't think Arthur really thinks thinks that much about magic because he has got other problems to worry about. At the moment, anyway, yeah. Yeah, and he doesn't... Yeah, he doesn't... I don't think that it's really something he thinks about unless it's brought to his attention. But yeah. he has... And I think... I will say that I think the same is true for a lot of his future going forward. Like, Arthur doesn't really bother with magic unless he's forced to deal with it. Yeah, that is true. But we have these moments, which I wish were explored a little more. Like, you know, even by even in Mark of Nimue, even in Mark of Nimue, he is kind of perpetuating Uther's view by being like yes I know magic is an evil father but then he's like you know yeah maybe she used magic to save her father but that's not the same as using it to hurt people like there are already those seeds there you know and yet he's so furious in moment of truth you know like when he realizes someone used magic and I don't know if that's just because he thinks I I honestly wonder if that's because he genuinely thinks in that moment that it was Merlin because he look because he looks at Merlin first I think and he I think he expects Merlin to say it was him and so I think he's 
kind of retroact like like he's almost furious in advance and then when will says it like notice he doesn't he's not really that mad you know like when will says it's him he's like get him inside like it's not like he's already calmed down by that point so i wonder if it was more to do with the fact that oh merlin did this tornado i'm furious because he lied to me i don't know if he even really has i think that he has an opinion on sorcerers that is his father's opinion i don't think he really actually hates them deep down unless they're causing trouble for him like anhora <laughs> like like when he thinks that anhora is actively trying to harm his people he can't get his head around the fact that it's him <laughs> that's doing it um i don't necessarily think that at this point he really hates sorcerers because i don't believe that you can get to sins of the father and say out loud oh, perhaps not all sorcerers are bad, if that's not already been in your mind, like, all this time? Because he's had no reason to think that, you know, like, Merlin's not said anything to him leading up to that moment that would allow him to believe that. And I think that in that moment in Mark of Nimue, when he's like, you know, there's a difference between using magic for good and a difference between using magic for evil. I think he already understands that, but he chooses to ignore it because Arthur is a very complacent character even at this point but we love him anyway you know oh for sure i do um well i would like to uh if it's okay with you momo wrap up this uh season one wrap up with uh a couple of quick fire questions for you Oh god. I'm gonna try and answer them too. So try and answer off the top of are your they, head. Are they quiz questions? No, 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 no. Questions? So it, I'm gonna say favorite episode of season one. Uh... Like go with your gut. Go with your gut. That's why they're quick fire. I don't have one. <laughs> you must have one you like more than the others. <laughs> they uh... like all equally. <laughs> oh for fuck's sake. Why don't you go first? Well, mine's the poison challenge. <laughs> right, I knew this. I knew this. It's literally I honestly do not have one. Okay, like, well, then let's do, do least favorite. One, season one is not my least favorite. The least favorite episode of season one. <laughs> which favorite. I think we both probably have the same. Well, I, I'm pretty sure yours is a remedy to cure all ills. <laughs> yes. It's so boring. Mine is, honestly, probably uh, beginning of the end. Really? Yeah. I, uh, that's really interesting. You'll have to I tell just, me why sometime. It's, uh, I just find it boring. Fair enough. Yeah. So, well, I was going to go on to ask some more favorites, but I think if Momo's finding it hard to think of a favorite episode on the spot, she probably won't be able to come up with favorite quotes, etc. on the spot. So. I never managed to give favorite quotes. It's true. That's true. Um, Well, what we can do is when we do season two wrap up, I'll... I won't do them as quick fire. I have Thank clearly, you. I have Give clearly uh, made a big mistake. Uh, this was a terrible mistake. <laughs> In fact, no, I, can, I, I can give you my favorite quote. Okay. My favorite quote is Pendragon. Okay. My favorite will be it's harvest time. <laughs> I thought survive. Oh, we only <laughs> kept what we need to survive. 
survive. <laughs> I will say one one quote that I really love is uh from Lancelot, and it's when Merlin is like, "So if you had to choose, who would you marry, Arthur or Lancelot?" And Gwen is, "But I don't have to choose, and I never will." And I'm just like, "Ooh, that's I love this." And she literally is telling the truth because she never chooses. That's true. <laughs> so who knew it was actual premonition? <laughs> Gwen is actually the one that can see the future. Who knew? <laughs> Plot development. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I also love, oh, you know, just background stuff. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Just all of Uther's lines, all of them. <laughs> oh God. Again, from just the most I have you. conquered the old I've religion. I've conquered the old religion. Its omens mean nothing to me. <laughs> That's not how it works. Uther, baby. <laughs> oh my God. It's yeah. I but I also have a a big soft spot for um one is. It's really bad. The other is unthinkable. There's something about that that just always hits me in the feels. Uh, It's so good. Um, But yeah, so I think we've probably beaten that horse to death. Uh, Hopefully you guys have some interesting feedback for us. We really, really would love to hear your thoughts on season one as a whole. Give us your favorite episodes from season one, your favorite arcs, what you think of where the characters are at by one thirteen, And we will look forward to reviewing season two very shortly. Yeah. And before that, next time we are going to talk about another fanfic genre. Now that we've had early fics and canon fics, we are going to talk about reincarnation and author returns fics. And we will have some guests for that. Woohoo! Woohoo! Yes. Also, our theme music was composed by Sidesteppings exclusively for Melissen. Our news music comes from Manzardian on freesound.org. Also, I'm Momotastic on AO3 where I post fanfic and Momopods also on AO3 where I post podfic. And you can find me on Tumblr as Momotastic27 if you like. And I'm Miss Snowfox with an extra X on Tumblr and Twitter. I'm Miss Snowfox on Instagram mix and Miss Snowfox Cosplays for my cosplay stuff. I'm Miss Snowfox on AO3 and Magical Unicorn 22 on YouTube where you can find the majority of my fandom content that I've created myself. Uh, yeah, that is all the places that you can find me. Amazing. So until we talk to you in about a week, I have been Momotastic. And I'm Miss Snowfox. Bye. Bye.